you can't be good on your own power. You actually need a higher power to be good. And then once you acknowledge that, oh my goodness, the, you, what happens is a lot of those lower vibrating emotions like shame and guilt and fear, those tend to subside because you're no longer trying to go it on your own. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome, everyone, to the Mind Valley podcast. This is a really intriguing episode. I'm live as we're recording this with the Ben Greenfield, one of the fittest human beings alive. Ben is the author of multiple books, but today we're going to be talking about his new book, Endure, Tools, Tactics, and Habits for Spiritual Stamina. I have so much respect for Ben because Ben just helped me pile on one and a half kilograms of extra muscle in the last six months. He's been a constant inspiration to me. Now, as we're doing this interview, you're going to hear some weird sounds in the background because, well, we're dealing with Ben. <laughs> he does not take this interview sitting down. He's moving. He's walking. He is hiking through a forest. So let me get started, Ben. Let me do a quick, quick intro of it. First, I want to read out some of the comments that people are, are typing out in our chat. So we have a live audience here of Mind Valley members. So Christina Dimitriou is saying the Longevity Blueprint by Ben Greenfield, which is Ben's program on Mind Valley, is the reason she started going on a 30-minute walk every single day. Awesome. Uh, said, I also started since more than two years my daily walk due to Ben's Longevity Blueprint. I love the number of, of you guys who are talking about daily walks right now. Ben is one of the most uh, respected men in the health and wellness field. Now, before I read you his regular bio, let me tell you why I respect Ben, okay? So firstly, Ben is one of the smartest human beings I know. I've had Ben come to Estonia uh, with his kids uh, to participate in Mind Valley University. And I remember going out for dinner with him, his kids, my kids, going on walks. Ben would stop as we were going on walks, pick up random herbs and grasses from the ground and stick it in his mouth because he understands nature to that level. He knows exactly what each herb or leaf is going to do. I visited Ben in his home in um, um, Spokane, Washington, and I was astonished by how he treats his family how he spends time with his kids, how he works with his children. Ben's children are, are so incredibly gifted. You have to listen to Ben's podcast episodes where he talks about parenting because he is a role model father to me. But in addition to that, Ben is the New York Times bestselling author of 17 books. He's also the CEO of Ben Greenfield Life and the co-founder of Keon, which is his supplement company. His understanding of functional exercise, nutrition, and the delicate balance between performance and health has helped thousands of people around the world. At one point, Ben was one of the voted top fitness trainer in the United States. I believe that was 2007. And Ben is one of those rare individuals who has competed in four of the toughest Spartan races on the planet. And so this man is an expert in everything from brain performance enhancement, fat loss, digestion, sleep, hormones, anti-aging, parenting, relationships, spiritual fitness, smart drugs, nootropics, and overall wellness for achieving an optimist life. Now, Ben and I were in London recently, just a couple of months back, and we were the two people headlining the Health Optimization Summit in London for 2,000 people. And and uh, Ben is like a celebrity in the in that world, in the health optimization world, the biohacking world. And if you see him on stage, you understand why. He is so brilliant. He lays out fact after fact after fact after idea after practical tip that 
you have, he got a standing ovation. But not only that, what I respect most about the man is as he's doing this, he's ridiculously funny, charming, absolutely loving, and he's genuinely one of the kindest people I know. So Ben, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Dude, you kind of forgot to mention my secret weapon. I, uh, I'm, I make really good carrot cake these days. So I, I think if, if all else goes wrong and all else fails, I'm just going to start a bakery and make carrot cake. So remember to, uh, to, to include that the next time you introduce me, Vishen. Aside from that, like the, what kind words? Carrot cake. Ooh, I got to try that. <laughs> ben, um, so we've been talking about so many different things. Um, first, first, um, before we get to the book Endure, I know a lot of people are going to be wondering, how did you help me put on 1.5 kilograms of extra muscle? Could you just quickly in three to four minutes repeat that protocol for people who may have missed it on my Instagram? Yeah, we well, we focused on two primary factors, the nutrition and the training. And uh, from a nutritional standpoint, you know, one of the one of the biggest mistakes that people who are trying to put on muscle make is they're a little bit calorie phobic just mm-hmm. because, you know, you're trying to get lean and put on muscle at the same time. But the fact is, if you are lifting as they say, uh, heavy things, what happens is all those extra calories you're eating are going to get converted into lean muscle tissue. And so I had you shift to about 0.8 grams per, uh, per pound of protein. Uh, I'll let you do the conversion. <laughs> 0.8 grams per pound of, of protein and, uh, and sprinkle that in through meals, you know, 30 to 40 grams at each meal. And then to use creatine, uh, colostrum was another major one. We also had you on some essential amino acids. Uh, and so from a nutritional standpoint, that's the biggie is 0.8 grams per pound of protein. And then you want to get a calculator. I actually talked about the newest calculator on my, on my podcast yesterday. You know, you got to get an activity calculator and eat about 500 to a thousand calories over and above your metabolic rate. So, so you're technically eating a lot of good, wholesome food. And I, you know, I told you even those things like, you know, organ meats, uh, colostrum, uh, a lot of these foods that many people neglect to include are incredibly anabolic for lean muscle tissue. From a training standpoint, you know, a lot of people will use the old school bodybuilding advice of like training back and biceps on Monday and triceps and whatever calves on Tuesday and core on Wednesday. That really isn't a great way to put on muscle, especially if you have limited time to train. Instead, full body workouts about four times a week where you're doing big multi-joint lifts, uh, you know, like the chest press, the row, the pull down, uh, the horizontal press or the vertical press, a squat or a leg press. And basically doing those to failure just three or four times a week combined with these frequent protein surges, eating an adequate amount of food, including colostrum and creatine and some of these organ meats and very anabolic compounds. Uh, it's, it's pretty surprising how it's not that difficult to put on muscle from, uh, I guess, on paper. As you experience vision, you still got to put in the blood, sweat and tears and chop wood and carry water. But that's the right. general overview. And then, and then what I did in terms of working out is I, um, I had Ronan Diego uh, of Mind Valley design a 10x protocol for me. I was going to the gym about twice a week on average, uh, but each gym workout was about 45 minutes. And, you know, I thought, because I'm used to like the 30 minute 10x workout, but I thought this was going to be too much because it was three times what I normally do, but I fell in love with it. It became such a great way to de-stress. Uh, so that was really helpful too. But a quick question, Ben, on that 0.8 grams of protein for uh, per pound of body fat, does that apply to women as well or only men? Well, it's per pound, per pound of body weight, not necessarily per pound of body fat. 
Sorry, what yes, did I, that, what did that I mean? applies to both women and men, but, but the consideration here is that men at a typical meal max out at being able to absorb around 30 to 40 grams of protein. For women, it's closer to 20 to 30 grams of protein. But obviously, it shouldn't be an issue because most women are a little smaller than men and they're going to be eating fewer overall calories anyway. So it still comes out to you know equivalent amount of protein in most cases. Got it. And then one more thing, Ben, I noticed when I visited you, I know as people hear you talking right now and you're talking about protein and organ meats, it sounds like you're just advocating a pure healthy diet. But when I visited you and we had dinner together, you were really feasting on everything. I think I think uh, there was bread, there were carbs, and you explained something to me about your philosophy here. Could you share that? Although I don't remember exactly what I told you, I can tell you what I think I probably told you. I, I am, as you noted, omnivorous. And I think most human beings, aside from a few rare cases who have, for example, you know, like a like an allergy to meat or a severe gut dysfunction that keeps them from digesting vegetables properly, tend to do best on an omnivorous diet. Uh, but the fact is, you know, there there is no one perfect diet for all of humankind. It's going to vary largely in terms of carbs, fats, proteins, and that's just based on your genetics, your blood work, your, you know, your immune system tolerance, a whole host of factors. But ultimately, I think that when you look at this idea that a lot of people are bandying about that like vegetables or grains are bad for you, I think this is what I explained to you. The fact is they actually are. They don't have teeth and 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 claws and hooves and nails to be able to fend themselves. So plants develop these natural defense mechanisms that tend to do damage to the human gut or impair mineral absorption or nutrient absorption in the human gut. We're talking about things you probably heard like gluten and right. lectin and phytic acids. But the solution is not to not eat those compounds in the same way that if I were hunting a deer, I wouldn't like jump out of a tree branch with a pirate knife in my teeth and try to wrestle the deer to the ground and then begin to eat it right there. No, there's a great deal of preparation and then field dressing and cooking and smoking and marinating and grilling. And it's the same thing with plants. They must be soaked and sprouted and fermented and treated the way our ancestors would have eaten vegetables and plants and grains in order to deactivate a lot of those natural built-in plant defense mechanisms and thus render them edible. So it's, it's more about being an intelligent, omnivorous eater who's willing to prepare your food in a mindful manner that allows it to not do damage to the body. It's not about saying, oh, that's bad for me, therefore I'm never going to eat it. It's more of a mindset of, oh, that's bad for me, but is there some way, you know, based on food science that I could make that not bad for me? And in most cases, the answer is yes, but the, you know, the dirty secret in the nutrition industry is that if you write a book and say that book is like the ultimate diet for all of humankind and this food group is evil, no matter what, black and white, all or nothing, that's a good way to make a lot of money because people love like dogmatic diet advice. People love, yeah, people love dogma. That, that's absolutely true. So let's talk, about, let's talk about the new book, Endure. Firstly, subtitle of the book is Tools, Tactics, and Habits for Spiritual Stamina. What is spiritual stamina? Look, look I, th I think the very best way to think about this mission is we are often tempted to think of ourselves as a body with a soul. Uh, the, the flesh component of living is, is very immediately detectable and accessible. We can feel it through, through you know, lifting weights and running or eating a wonderful you know, piece of ribeye or, or blueberry ice cream or, or having amazing sex and orgasms. And you know, we, can, we can feel all the physical around us all the time. 
And so it's easy to walk around with a body and we kind of sort of sense we have a spirit and a soul, but it's kind of like this ethereal thing that we don't quite understand, but it's there. If you flip that and you think of yourself instead as a soul with a body and the body's just a shell. And if you take care of your body, then you're going to be better equipped to serve your ultimate life's purpose with your soul. But the soul is the only part of you that is that is eternal, that can go on to last forever. And I realize that different religious beliefs will have different definitions of what forever is, you know, like a Judeo-Christian belief would, for example, involve, you know, eternal bliss with God. Uh, uh, you know, you might look at like more of a, a Buddhist approach where you might have a certain number of reincarnations. But ultimately, the idea is that your, your soul is the most important part of you. And so when you look at all the folks, especially the people who I interact with, who are putting a lot of time and money and blood, sweat and tears into their physical fitness or their mental fitness, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's often extremely imbalanced with the amount of time that they're dedicating to the so-called spiritual disciplines that build spiritual fitness or spiritual stamina. And I'm talking about things like fasting and meditation and prayer and silence and solitude and study and nature immersion and nature sit spots and playing music and singing and being in relationships and learning how to make those relationships thriving and focusing on, on things like faith and family, even before the focus is placed upon things like health or finances. And, you know, when you step back and you look at yourself as a soul with a body, you realize that it's not only as important, but it's more important to train that soul every day to build it up, to make it stronger so that you can be better equipped to live your life's purpose. And also so that you can be ultimately fulfilled because that soul is it's like an eternal hole in our soul and in our, in, our, in our body. And the only thing that can fill an eternal hole are things that are eternal. And those are more of the spiritual practices than they are the physical practices. And trust me, as a guy who uh, relied upon my own strength and my own fitness and my body and my, my image and, you know, how good I looked in spandex or how strong my abs were for a very long time. It, it really took me taking a deep dive into actually dedicating myself morning and evening to things like meditation and prayer and silence and solitude and devotions and training the spirit to really get myself to the point where I realized that my flesh will fade, but my spirit will last forever. So why shouldn't I be taking care of it? Wow. So firstly, I'm so happy you're saying that because this is my big beef with the biohacking movement. So often they talk about supplements, they talk about hardware, they talk about different forms of exercise or fancy exercise gear. And for the longest time, concepts like what you just mentioned have been completely absent within that movement. Yet we know that the mind has this incredible impact on the body. One of my biggest things that I teach right now is really imagery therapy or mind-body healing. And I'm so happy that someone with your caliber, with the amount of respect you get in the health and wellness circles is so openly talking about that. In fact, when I saw you at the, uh, the biohacking um, event in London, when you were speaking in front of 2000 people, what impressed me about your talk is how you brought in spirit and soul. So I really appreciate what you're, what, what you're doing here with this book. So I, I'd love to get an idea of all the different approaches you, you mentioned. Tell us about some of these approaches. One of the things I love that you mentioned is to focus on family, on relationship. But tell me about one, one of the, the, the key ideas that you think isn't getting enough attention that we need to be aware about. So 
uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny because you hear like romantic advice given to couples and they say, oh, you need to calendar sex. And a lot of people are like, oh, wait, that takes all the sexiness and the pleasure out of sex. I gotta put it on the calendar. And it becomes like this materialistic, you know, scientific, logical, rational thing. I'm, I'm going to do it you know, on Thursday night at 8 p.m. The fact is that, you know, anybody who has tried that approach realizes the calendaring really doesn't suck the enjoyment out of sex, especially for a busy couple. It just ensures, you know, back to what gets measured gets managed, you know, like these daily walks that I do for my step count. In the same way, calendaring your spiritual routine in the same way that you'd calendar an exercise routine or, you know, and I've worked with some poker players and, and chess athletes, et cetera, who have a brain training routine. And the idea here is that you have to know what you're going to do when you get up, both when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're traveling. Of course, the latter scenario is often more difficult, but I, I have I have approaches for that. Now, yeah, if, I'll, I'll give you an example. OK, so when I wake up in the morning, I know that within the first hour of waking, that's when a lot of these theta and delta brainwaves from sleep, these slower, more mindful brainwaves are still the ones that are turned on most readily. It's before coffee hits your bloodstream and great amounts of sunlight and bright light hit your bloodstream, preferably, of course, before you've turned on your phone and, and cortisol has enhanced that awakening response even more. Well, you are primed right then to basically go into spiritual training mode. So within that first hour of waking, I've got a cushion on the living room floor or outside in the patio. I put on music because it really helps to shift your state even more. I play a station called Soaking Worship, which is really great instrumental music for things like worship and prayer. I always have some kind of a devotional that I'm working through and reading. Typically, I have uh, other literature open in front of me. In my case, it's the Bible. And I'm actually reading the devotional, reading the Bible. And then once I finish, I open up my prayer book and I pray for people who I've committed to pray for. And then I'll just sit there after I've prayed and listen for, for any still small voice in the silence. Listen for any message that God might be sending to me. And if that happens, I can, I can write it down in my journal. And so that's typically around like 6 a.m. And, and also that's like 6 to 6.15 or 6.20. We're not talking about having to become like a Tibetan monk who's spending hours each day these type of practices. But then I'll head down to my office. I'll get some work done. I'll have some coffee. I'll go about my day. The family is all up by 7.30 at the latest. So I come up out of my office at 7.30 and I gather the whole family and we do a practice of gratitude, uh, tapping, breath work, and then writing down a person who we can serve or pray for or help that day. And then we have a big team huddle we listen to some music, like an uplifting song, or we sing a song together. And it's like the big team spiritual charge up for the family at the beginning of the day. So that means that by about 8 a.m., I've had two touch points to train my spirit, my own solo time within an hour after I get up. And then the gathering of the family, which is super special and really, really good for keeping the family bonded as well. It just helps get everybody on the same page in a really good space in the morning. Now, I like the concept of bookending that practice. And so in the evening, we gather the whole family. We go to my son's bedroom. They're, they're twins and they sleep in the same room. So that makes it easy. We play some music. I play a guitar song. And then we do a process of what's called self-examination. I talk about it in this, in this in my book. You visualize your entire day and you see yourself like in the third person going through your entire day, like a character in a movie. As you're watching that character of you in the movie, you're asking yourself, what good? have I done this day? Mm -hmm. What could I have done better this day? Meaning what failures have I learned from? And then where was I most purpose filled on this day? And that last question's 
well, but all the questions are, are uh, they're impactful. But that last question, you'll find yourself over the course of a, just a month, you know, answering that question, beginning to learn more about what your unique skill set is, what it is that you're called to. I, I felt most purpose filled when I was when I, when I was you know writing a, a, a chapter in a, in a book that I'm working on, or I felt most purpose filled when I took time off work and started just making this this wonderful work of art in watercolor, or I felt most purpose filled when I was playing on the guitar, or I felt most purpose filled when I was sitting at my desk talking to a client, right? So it really helps you discover what it is that your purpose is, and it helps you get gradually better each day because you try not to repeat the same mistakes that you may have failed at the previous day and you learn the things that you did good and that were most purpose-filled from the previous day and the next day gets better and better. And so it really enhances that concept of how you live your days is how you live your life. And so we go through that whole process and then we finish with a prayer and we tuck away to bed. And so that's an example of, you know, it's probably about 45 minutes a day between my morning routine, gathering the family at the beginning of the day and gathering the family at the end of the day. But that's just a perfect example of of how someone could start and how these things can just be woven into your your daily routine. Now, that all being said, I should mention, I like to have one time during the week, like on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning, where it's a longer, you know, like going in the sauna and doing 30 minutes of breath work and doing some more intense meditation and kind of like Kind of like a lot of athletes like to have that one workout per week that's kind of hard and really pushes them. I try to do something like that once a week for my spirit as well. Ben, that is beautiful. I, I love what you're talking about. So, so I know the Mind Valley audience, and I know they want to. They're going to want us to go a little bit more in detail here. Okay. So, firstly, I'm guessing this entire routine is described in the book Endure, right? And there's a lot more in this book. It's not just this routine. There are so many yeah. parables, lessons. And you bring in a lot of examples from your faith, which I really, really, really respect because I think in today's world, we don't talk about faith as much as we should. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the thing is that is in the bookends chapter of the book, and it's going to vary slightly from person to person. But what I would recommend to you is that you use proven tools, no matter what spiritual training practice that you engage in. What I mean by that is, yes, you could meditate. But you can stack things on top of prayer or meditation or sitting in silence that enhance that experience, such as doing rounds of breath work leading up to or during that experience, uh, such as burning some type of incense or candle or essential oil because your olfactory receptors become tuned to that experience and shift more readily into a spiritual training experience upon receiving that smell. Another example would be, like I mentioned, music, you know, preferably music with like theta or delta brainwaves that are patterned on top of it. Again, like the one that I use right now is Soaking Worship or their apps like like Brain FM and the music really helps as well. So there are even technologies. I just released a, a podcast with the author of an intriguing book called Spirit Tech where she talks about headsets like the, like the Zendo uh, or, or the V-Lite or some of these things that can literally shift the brain's waves. You know, and it sounds gimmicky to have technology on your head while you're meditating or praying or doing your devotions or your spiritual care, but, but it's surprising how much more quickly you can, as they say, drop in to the experience when you blend technology with some of these practices as well. And speaking of technology, you know, the last piece I'll, I'll mention here uh, related to the spiritual habits is that a lot of stuff gets kind of like thrown to pot when you travel. Cause it's like, Oh wait, my family's not here. So I'm not doing the one routine with them. And I got up in the morning, but like, I'm supposed to be, you know, on stage speaking in a half hour. I have no time to do this. So 
when I travel, I like to have my hand held. I like to have my hand held. And so uh, there's a multitude of apps that will walk you through a morning meditation. Uh, Vision has an amazing meditation that, that's a six-step meditation that's part of his new book. That'd be one example of, of a great meditation that you simply put into your ears and listen to. There's another one I like called the pause app, which allows you to, based on the busyness of your day, select a one, three, five, or 10-minute pause-based meditation. And so when I travel, I give myself permission to basically switch from my home routine use an app where I've got someone's voice and music pre-packaged walking me through it because I find that it holds me more accountable when I travel and it's easier for me to have a whole bunch of racing thoughts to not have to rely upon my own strength but to just put somebody else's voice and music into my ears and then sit on my hotel room floor and do it that way so give yourself permission for it to vary a little bit on the road because there'll be more cognitive resistance for people who are who are traveling to just like do it all on your own the same way as you were at home I, I love this about you because there's so much knowledge in your head. You just rattle off. You just rattle off things, right? But I actually want to slow down a bit and go deeper into certain practices. So I love the devotional and prayer practice and the reciting verses from the Bible that you do in the morning or any religious book. I think that's that's beautiful. Tell us a little bit about what you do with your with your wife and kids after that. So you said the total, the yeah. total is 45 minutes, but break down that approach when you assemble the family together. What do you do? Yeah. When you- what do you do in the evening? Just yeah. down for us, for those of us who want to really understand this and try it. Yeah. So about 7.30, I come up and sometimes my sons are out feeding the goats or caring for the chickens or my wife's washing her face or making coffee or whatever. But everybody kind of knows it's around 7.30 when dad's going to come up from his office and say, hey, family, five minute warning. And then everybody kind of knows they're going to need to go get their journals right. and be ready, typically in the summer or spring on the back porch, right. typically in the winter or fall in, in the living room. We're lucky. Uh, I or mom have already started a nice little roaring fire to gather around. And so we all come together and I have an app called the uh, same one I mentioned earlier called Insight Timer. And I've got that set up for eight minutes. Uh, there is a, an opening bell and I like to put a little background noise. So I use the I think I'm using the angelic choir noise right now. They got about 20 different options for background music or tunes. And so I, I put that on and the first three minutes are simply sitting in silence after having read the encouraging verse or proverb that's on the top page of the journal that we use. We use a journal called the Spiritual Disciplines Journal. Uh, in full disclosure, that's a, that's a journal that I, that I wrote and designed after we adopted this as a family in case other people wanted to do the same thing as we were doing. But we read the, the verse or the proverb on the top of the page and the first three minutes is simply spent breathing and dwelling upon the words that we've read with bonus points if you memorize it. My sons always know big high fives and great job at the dinner table that night if they can come to the dinner table having had memorized that verse or proverb. And most of the time they do it, so they're, they're memorizing like four to five sayings a week easily, which is great. And I, I do the same thing. And then there's a little bell that chimes at the three-minute mark, and from there we go into gratitude. So you think of one thing that you're grateful for, and you write it down in the space allotted in the journal But then you spend the next two minutes literally visualizing and reliving that experience based upon the science that when you relive and reimagine an experience that happened to you, someone you saw, something you experienced, uh, anything from the previous day or or the morning leading up to that point, you actually have the same rush of neurochemicals and neurotransmitters that occurred when that gratitude event happened to you in the first place. So we train the powers of visualization the same way that we use the powers of visualization for our examination at the end of the day. 
and we visualize what it is we're going for, write that down. And after two minutes, so we're at the five minute mark now, the bell goes off again, and now it's service. Okay. A lot of morning routines involve, you know, self-affirmations like me, 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 I, 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 I'm good. I'm great. I'm wonderful. Gosh, darn it. Everybody likes me. And that's great. I think for, to have positive self-talk, but we really want to have a little bit more of an others facing approach to the day. And so we then write down one person who we can pray for or help or serve that day. And we have the next two minutes to basically plot and plan out how we're going to help that person or start praying for them right there or think, okay, you know, sometimes I'll even write it down on my hand, I'll open my eyes and like write down, call mom 2 PM on my hand, you know, just to remind myself. So, you know, any, any person who you can physically help or be there for or call or simply pray for from a distance, we write that name down. And then the final bell rings, we go into tapping. We tap either on the wrist or the heart or the temples about 15 to 20 times. And that sets an anchor, meaning that the peace that we've built over the past seven minutes can be drawn back upon by simply tapping that anchor when we're stressed out at the end of the day or during any point in the day. And we want to return back to that same peaceful feeling that we had at the end of the meditation. And so we tap, 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 tap. And then we all take a deep, 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 deep breath in, let it out. And then we finish by saying a prayer or singing a song together. And that's the entirety of the morning routine. Aside from we stand up, we all have a group hug. So we get the oxytocin and the, and the hormones from bonding generated. We have a quick two to three minute meeting about the day, you know, where the boys going, what time's dinner? What are we having for dinner? You know, what can I help with? What's going on here? What's going on there? And then we kind of like a football team, you know, just kind of clap and head out and tackle the day. And all of that in eight minutes. And I love the fact that you're bringing family into this. This is so, so, so beautiful. So beautiful. So um, I, I'm, I'm divorced. So my kids spend time with their mom and then they spend time with me. And I think I'm going to start incorporating some of these ideas with my children when they are staying with me. Now, break down the closing ritual, the one that you do before you go to bed. You said you all yeah. assemble your twin's bedroom and break that down for us. You know, every night's kind of like a party at our house, Vision. Like, I so look forward to the end of the day because no matter whether we have visitors or not, about 7 p.m., we're all gathered as a family in the kitchen and we're cooking and making a meal together and laughing and playing music and joking and talking about each other's days. And so around 7.30 or so, we've got some kind of dinner prepared. And then I lead the family in a song. I let my sons typically choose the song, but, but we play a wonderful song, kind of like have a campfire sing-along around the dinner table, you know, just one song, like three or four minutes. And we yeah. sit down and we play games all night long. We have card games and board games and, and talking games and table topics games. We play games typically for about an hour. And then when that finishes, it's wonderful because my kids are learning all sorts of game theory and language and rhetoric and math and logic and all these things they don't even realize they're learning. It's kind of like sneaking vegetables into their right. spaghetti sauce when they play games every night at the table. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, great way to come together at the end of the day. And then we clean the kitchen together, take care of any final chores like closing up the chicken coop or closing the garage or putting on the alarm. And we all go upstairs into my son's room. I typically have my guitar or my ukulele with me and uh, I'll play everybody a song. And then we all gather together, just kind of snuggle up on the beds and we open up our journals again, same journals, but now there's a bottom half to each page. In that bottom half are those three questions I mentioned earlier. What good have I done? What could I have done better? And where was I most connected to my life's purpose? So for the first minute or two, we just do deep breathing. 
about a, a, an eight count in, or I'm sorry, a four count in and an eight count out, right? So we're breathing, we're exhaling longer than we inhale, which is a really, really good way to relax the body and activate the parasympathetic nervous system at the end of the day. And then once we've done a couple of minutes of that breathing, then I tell the family, okay, begin to visualize your day. And we all know the questions we're gonna answer. So we start to visualize the day. And as we watch ourselves, like that third person character in a movie, like I was talking about earlier, we ask ourselves, okay, what good did I do? What could I have done better? What failures did I learn from? Where was I most purpose-filled? And everybody has the understanding that whether it takes you two minutes to write all that down and visualize or whether it takes four or five minutes, once you finish, you return back to the breathing, right? And after a few minutes, dad will kind of glance around the room and see if everybody's journals are still open or closed, see where everybody's at in their process. And then I will basically break the silence with a final prayer, you know, a prayer that God would watch over the home. We'd be surrounded by angels while we sleep and that everyone would wake refreshed and ready to live out their life's purpose. And so we say a prayer and then, uh, and then we, we go to bed. And so that's kind of what the end of the day looks like. I love this, Ben. I absolutely love this. And I've met your, I've met your kids and I can tell you they are two of the most wonderful kids I've ever encountered in my life. They are, your, your children are just oh. astonishing as who they show up with as young men. Um, so kudos to you as a father. Oh, well, well, thanks. I, I think uh, I'd have to give probably 99.999% of the credit to my wife, but you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm there playing a supportive role. <laughs> okay. So, so Amal, Amal, who's live with us is just asking, could you kindly repeat the question? So I bet a lot of you have those, uh, have that. What, what are the oh, yeah. questions you, you have, you address as a family before going to bed? Yeah. By the way, the morning is what am I grateful for and who can I pray for or help or serve this day? And then the evening is what good have I done? What could I have done better? And where was I most purpose-filled? Right. Where was I most purpose-filled? I love that, Ben. Now, Ben, I want to talk about faith for a moment, okay? One of the things I respect about you is your, your faith, how you honor the Bible, um, your beliefs about God and religion. And this isn't something that, get, that gets addressed uh, to, uh, enough in the personal growth field. In fact, it's often dismissed. Now, in the six-phase meditation, which I designed, what many people don't understand is that phase six is basically prayer. But if I call it prayer, it does turn off some people. But phase six is essentially prayer. You're praying to, to the Lord or Jesus or whatever higher power you believe in. Now, I have my understandings for why I believe prayer is important. And maybe I'll share some of that in a moment. But I'd love to know yours. Why is prayer important to you? First of all, you're, you're, you're right. You know, to talk about religion and faith is, is can be highly dogmatic, and I think that one reason for that is that not only is it the the filter through which most people uh, create their entire worldview. You know, you could say even an atheist is a religion; it's just a religion of believing in some god other than you know an, an intelligent power. Uh, but ultimately, when there's that level of importance placed upon a certain belief system, inevitably violence and power and greed tend to crop up around that dogmatic belief because people can be easily collected into tribes. And as a result of that, if you look at a lot of the violence that has occurred since the dawn of humankind, much of it was based on 
well, what religion or faith are you? Oh, wait, that's not mine. Okay, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm going to kill you. And we see all these horrible travesties occur as a result of religion. So I think human beings have every right to, to have their spidey sense go up when people start talking about their beliefs, especially in a dogmatic way. And so, you know, it's just something to recognize. I think that if you recognize it and you live your life through the lens of really wanting to understand others' belief patterns and others' worldview systems, not necessarily adopt those same systems, but understand them and ensure that you love that person no matter what. That's a fellow human being. No matter what they believe, your responsibility is to love them and accept them and for them to be seen and heard by you and for you to make every attempt you can to understand them, right? So if you, like my wife and I are Christians and, and we're what a lot of people in America would probably label as like fundamentalist Christians or right-wing Christians, right? So we're like, you know, libertarian, gun-owning, pro-life, you know, blah, 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 right? You'd probably, you'd probably think we're wearing Trump mega hats or something, but that's not, I, I didn't vote for Trump. That's not, that's a discussion for another day. But when you come to our house for dinner, it's like, the Democrats and, you know, and, and the people down the street who, uh, who have no belief in God whatsoever. And, you know, and a couple of, of, of poor folks who couldn't afford to go to dinner elsewhere. So they're over crashing on her couch and, you know, just a random hodgepodge. It's like the Island of misfit toys. And so despite me being dogmatic in my religious beliefs, my, I, I, you know, I know that my calling is to love my neighbor, my fellow human being, no matter what. And so when it comes to, uh, to prayer, which I believe was your question, what, what prayer looks like for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and why is it important? What do you believe? What do you yeah. believe happening during prayer? Yeah. And I agree with you. I believe it. Articulating it can be a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So if, if, if you look at the belief that we are all a bunch of chunks of flesh and blood floating through the giant uh, universe on a big rock, basically, you know, making money and building houses and having sex and making babies and surviving if we're the fittest until we eventually die and bam, game over. It's a far less hopeful and magical way to live than to acknowledge that there's like a spiritual universe, intelligent powers, uh, a J.R.R. Tolkien-esque fantasy novel written for our lives in which there are such things as you know, angels and demons and spirits and magic. And it's kind of funny because it's only over the past few hundred years of human history since the advent of scientism that humans lost some of that sacred touch with the universe in which we live and the acknowledgement that there is a fourth dimension, an unseen dimension and invisible things going on all around us. And the fact is, and here's what's magical, you can interact and communicate with those beings for, for better or worse. You know, some people will do that through, you know, plant medicine ceremonies, for example. Some people will do it at church. But, you know, if you look at something like the Bible, right, it says that, that we are to pray without ceasing. That's not like a recommendation. It's actually like a, like a commandment, pray without ceasing. Well, what's that mean to me? Basically, it means that I, I have, and this is magical to think about, an intelligent power acting over me as like, not just a, not just a, like a strict ruler, but as like a father, as a friend. And I can, I can talk to that power anytime. I can ask them for things, not like a magical genie to grant my wish and my wishes, but more like, I, I just need, I need strength right now. I don't have strength or I need energy right now. I don't have energy or please help me to get through this. Or what should I choose to do here about this difficult discussion I'm having with a, with a coworker or, or an employee and it's this idea that when you know somebody's got your back 
and there's someone or something that you can talk to, even if all the world has left you behind. And there's like this, this bosom that you can lay your head in when you're tired or when you're hungry or when you're broken and someone's there just like stroking your hair and taking care of you. I mean, that's what prayer is for me. It's like this reliance upon a higher power and the knowledge and the hope that I don't have to go at it alone. And it can be everything from, you know, me bowing my head before a meal and saying, Oh, thank you for this meal. And please also be with my mom right now and let her just feel a whole bunch of comfort right now because she's going through a hard time. Or it can be before bed at night. God, I've got a lot going through my mind right now. I give everyone and everything to you. I'm just going to hand all this to you. I know you've got it under control and I'm going to lay my head down on my pillow and go to sleep right now. Right. So, so there's not like one perfect way to pray. I, I actually really like prayer books. There's some beautiful prayer books out there. The one I'm using right now and the one that I actually use in the morning when we say prayer as a family is called uh, Piercing the Heavens piercing the heavens. And it was written by a group of, of Puritans and Puritans were known to be these, these people who had just like these beautiful, poetic, flowy prayers. And so that book is fantastic. If you want to learn a little bit more of the, like the poetry of praying or another example would be like the book of, of Psalms in the Bible's wonderful poetry and, and, and imaginative, you know, praise and prayers, you know, for times when you're broken or times when you're happy or times when you're sad or times when you're confused or times when you're persecuted. So, so that's kind of a flavor of what prayer means to me. I love that. I love how you explain that. I'm a big believer in prayer. And the reason I made prayer phase six of the six phase meditation is because I think one of the most important skills we can learn as human beings is how to access the unseen. I was having a conversation with Jean Houston, and I don't know if you've heard of Jean Houston, but she's like 83 years old. She is one of the um, Buckminster, Fuller, uh, Buckminster Fuller called her a living legend. And um, she is is one one of the the most respected women in the the spiritual personal growth movement in the United States. And Jean Houston, I, I asked her, if you were in Mind Valley, what would you teach? We were having a conversation just last week, and she mentioned I would teach people how to work with that which you cannot see, with the unseen, mm -hmm. with the spirit that is all around us. And I said, well, give me an example. And she shared a really fascinating story. She said, Vision, I've been around for, for decades, right? And I've got to meet many of the most remarkable people in the world. And there was a time I was working with Mother Teresa in India. And I asked Mother Teresa, how do you do all of these things that you do? Because you're everywhere. You're feeding like a million people. You're, you have all of this energy at your age. And Mother Teresa said, well, I do it because I collaborate with my beloved Jesus. And so oh. she said, you mean you pray? Mother Teresa goes, no, no. Jesus and I, we have a pact. Like we work together. Like he is mm. by We literally work together. And he removes all of the obstacles that come in my way. And this is how I'm able to do all the stuff that I do. Now, I see this in so many amazing people today. Very often, they, they are reluctant to bring in religion because, you know, as you mentioned, there is that part of religion that can be dogmatic. But I do this. I pray every single day. And it, it's part of me. And I, I, I really want more people to understand that there are things that we cannot see that are all around us. They are forces. They are, they, there's a spirit around us. We can't necessarily reduce it to science. No, I don't think we need to, but there's enough evidence that when we call upon and ask for this help, amazing things happen. Yeah, you're right. It's very easy to shrug it off as a dump of DMT from the pineal gland or a soup right. of neurotransmitters and neurochemicals like serotonin just kind of hanging around the synaptic cleft from some funky mushroom that you ate or something like that. 
But the fact is that, you know, there are certain means via which the spiritual world interacts with human beings. It can be, you know, via via plants, via sex, via breath work, via simply sitting and praying. And I think there are there are some dangers associated with certain elements. You know, I think that, you know, like seeking the advice of gods via, you know, like pharmawaska or something like that can kind of open up the portal to some darker influences if you're not very, very careful. I think some of that is abused these days. But ultimately, it'd be you'd be hard pressed to find someone who has, for example, had a plant medicine experience or experienced a a wonderful, wonderful prayer and worship session at church or has been out on a nature walk and all of a sudden felt their spidey sense go up and had tingles and all of a sudden been washed over with the magic of nature and and God revealing himself through nature who would return from experience like that and say, "Eh, I'm pretty sure it's just all chemicals. right? Right. And so the problem is you just get laughed at a lot these days if you try to acknowledge the existence of things like, oh, you know, fairies and elves and angels and demons yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I think that, uh, it, like I said, it's a pretty magical way to live when you know you're part of this, this fantasy story yeah. and there actually is existence of a spiritual universe. Because by the nature of you believing that your soul will go on to live forever, well, it's got to go somewhere, right? And so there, there is this spiritual ether that we will wind up and I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know that... It can be amazing. It can be beautiful. It can be blissful. And by you taking care of your spirit and, you know, and and seeking to acknowledge and commune with these higher powers, you're actually kind of on the road to ensuring that your soul does go on to a better place. What are your views? Uh, Recently, you came out and you spoke out against plant medicine really quick. And and like we have we have about 10 minutes left, but really quick. What what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you know, I've I've for about eight years, I've used and even abused uh, just about every plant medicine and compound known to humankind, you know, the ayahuascas and the DMTs and, and, you know, the psilocybin and the LSD and the cactus and the machuma and the MDMA. And, and the fact is, you know, what I've realized through those experiences is that you, you definitely do open a portal to a spiritual universe. And I've seen many, many people have their personalities, their psyches, their lives changed in a less than favorable way from those experiences, you know, and even, even, you know, began to develop, you know, borderline like bipolar and schizophrenia and psychosis. So I think there's some dangers from a psychological standpoint, but I think even more concerning to me is the idea, and this is, you know, Timothy Leary and Aldous Huxley and a lot of these forefathers of the plant medicine movement knew this and talked about it. If we create a scenario in which the way that you become soft-hearted towards all of humankind, the way that you experience spiritual enlightenment and salvation, the way that you develop, you know, love and become, quote, good, unquote, is by popping a pill or doing a drug or eating a certain plant compound, we run the risk of sending the message to the world that really there's like this small elite group of people who can afford to or have access to plant medicines, who are the spiritually elite, who have God at their beck and call at all times. And the rest of you, well, you're just kind of screwed. And I would hate to give that message to the world. So that combined with the fact that I think it can be a little bit dangerous to play around with, and it's used irresponsibly, dictates that the use cases for plant medicine to me are much, much less than what the world seems to be thinking of it these days. Meaning, I think there's possibly some use for end-of-life therapy, probably some use in a medically supervised set and setting for trauma, uh, and uh, likely for couples therapy, not in a, in a flat-out slobbering psychedelic hallucinogenic state, but using a heart opener like 
MDMA responsibly as a, as a couple, for example, for a long discussion in the bedroom or something like that. I think that those would be appropriate uses if used responsibly. And I also think that microdosing, right, taking very small amounts of psilocybin yeah. for sensory perception or LSD for focus or, you know, Wachuma for social ability. You know, I think that the smaller doses in the same way that I think about alcohol, the smaller doses are actually, you know, the reason God put a lot of that stuff on the planet in the first place and kind of like the intended usage. So I think we have to be really careful with these. And I think, you know, to finish this thought, if you do yeah. read the Bible, and believe in the Bible like I do. There's even a word used in the Bible called pharmakia, and it refers to using drugs to divine with the gods, right? Like saying, well, I'm not going to go pray and meditate and fast and go for a nature walk to seek God. I'm going to take this drug and just see what God happens to appear. And the problem is, like, it could be big G God. It could be little G gods. It could be a demon. It could be Satan. Like, you don't know what spiritual entity is going to wind up interacting with you in that space. And I think that God probably knew this was playing with fire. So in the Bible, it says, it doesn't say don't use these drugs, but it says don't use them to divine with the gods. And I think a lot of people are trying yeah. to use drugs to uh, to solve problems and divine with the gods. And I think that's a dangerous place to be because you don't know what spiritual entity wants to or is going to influence you. Yeah, and and what you're talking about is very, very, very true. I'm an advocate of plant medicine, but I always do I always do plant medicine in a very small microdose. So, for example, I use psilocybin for healing and and psilocybin for intuition for really listening to my heart very, very, very tiny dose. And I always create a container of energy that prevents anything that might be less than desirable energy from coming into my space. But many people don't. And, and I get what you're talking about. But that is way beyond the scope of this podcast. But that's which is why <laughs> you wrote a book, you wrote a book that goes into these topics and really addresses at the core spiritual stamina. And I also want to appreciate you for people who stand for something are some of the most attractive respected people in the world, right? We don't have to always agree with your stand, but I respect your stand. I mean, in this case, your stand is something I actually agree with, but I respect your stand, but I also respect how you are so open to the idea of, of religion as being not something dogmatic, but something that we all have access to. Like there's no one way, there's no Ben's way, or there's no the Catholic way, but there is this overall overreaching aspect of being human that we need to explore more. And I and I, I really love how you speak about it, how you stand up for it, and how you are bringing that conversation back into the world, particularly in the biohacking and health fields. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Vishen. And I guess my last thought would be this, you know, someone tweeted at me two days ago, I try not to read too many tweets, but this one caught my eyeballs for some reason. And it said, you're talking about a lot about religion, and the Bible and God, you know, bro, most people keep their faith private. And I thought, keep their faith private. This is one of the most meaningful, magical, spiritually enhancing activities that one could ever connect with. This is returns back to the concept of us being a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. Why on earth would I keep my jaw clamped about one of the one of the most beautiful things that has ever existed? You know, so I think it's OK to be public about your faith. Yeah, as, I mean, as long as you're not you're not telling people that your way is the way, right? So it's perfectly right. it's perfectly great to be public about your faith. Like when I travel the world, I want to meet people of different faith. I want to visit churches and mosques and temples. I want to discover how people pray, and I want to pray with them. And and I think it's such a beautiful aspect of being human. It's like tasting different dishes from around the world. Yeah, yeah, really and you know, I I I have to I I should probably say this just just so. So that uh, I, I'm fully authentic. I would say, like, probably contrary to you, I do believe 
my way is the way, comma, and I love you no matter what, right? Like that's, I, that's the kicker for me is like, so I am like, I'm dogmatic, but I'm not like judgmental and I don't, yes. you know, I, I don't hate any other people. You know what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. And that's the way I feel about the six space meditation, which, which I advocate, right? But, but, but let's talk about, before we go, let, let, I want to share an idea with people here who are listening, who may disagree with us or may, may see things differently. This is perfectly normal. Ken Wilber calls this the pre-trans policy. He says basically that as we grow as a, as a society, there are different people in different strata of understanding of the world. And there's a particular aspect of people in integral theory called the rationalists. So the rationalists, you find these people in Silicon Valley, scientists tend to be very rationalist, the people in Wall Street, very rationalist. It's the world by numbers. Now, when you're at the rational level, what happens is that you, you only see the world by numbers, by data, and you confuse a very important aspect of human evolution. You confuse pre-rational ideas and, or, or, or rather, you confuse pre-rational spirituality and transrational spirituality. Transrational means the spirituality that comes after the rational age. So pre-rational spirituality is the spirituality of the Middle Ages, right? When you believe yeah. burning witches at the stake, when you believed in, in, in ideas that were put out by the church to more oppress people. Transrational spirituality is the spirituality that's emerging now in the world. It's meditation. It's prayer, it's plant medicine, it's accessing intuitive insight, it's working with your energy body, but you don't see that. So you confuse the two. So concepts which are proven by science, the idea that we have an energy body, even reincarnation, there's so much evidence for it. The idea of intuition, so much evidence, but you label it as magical thinking. If you're at the rational level, you label it as magical thinking because you confuse transrational spirituality with pre-rational spirituality. And that's why you have people who say, don't talk about your faith. Now, nothing no. wrong there. They just simply have a slightly condensed mindset. But if you can expand the mindset and understand the difference between pre-rational and trans-rational, you suddenly open yourself up to such a greater exploration of what it means to be human. Yeah, I, I totally am on board with that. And, and you know, I would even say categorize the trans-rationals as uh, like, like an auto or autologous transrational and transrational. What I mean by that is like autologous transrational would be, you know, I, I meditate, I pray, you know, I do plant medicines, I, I do, you know, silence and solitude and spiritual immersions and fasting, et cetera, et cetera. Look how good I am. I'm doing all this. I'm so good. I'm going to be a good person. I'm making myself into a, into a spiritual superpower yogi. And that would be like the on your own power, on your own strength form of transrationalism. And then there's the other aspect of it, which is I actually have, this is back to like the prayer thing, right? I have a belief in a higher power who I am dependent upon, who I am hopeful on, who's got my back no matter what. And all of the meditation, prayer and everything, I'm not doing it because I'm inherently good. I'm doing it because I know that if I don't engage in these practices by the grace of God and, and, and God's power, then I am actually going to risk, as C.S. Lewis has written, becoming like an immortal monster rather than an immortal hero. And so I, I think there's even like a, there, there's, there's a difference between understanding like you can't be good on your own power. You actually need a higher power to be good. And then once you acknowledge that, oh my goodness, the, you, what happens is a lot of those lower vibrating emotions like shame and guilt and fear and some of the stuff David Hawkins talks about in um, Empower Versus Force, 
those tend to subside because you're no longer trying to go it on your own. Beautiful, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. Now, uh, as we come to the end of this podcast, let's talk about the book, Endure Tools, Tactics, and Habits for Spiritual Stamina. Ben, where can they get the book from? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I know if you go to bengreenfieldlife.com, it's somewhere on there. But I think there's also, I think it's getindoor.com is the actual book page, if I'm not mistaken. It shouldn't be too hard to find, though. bengreenfieldlife.com. Do not go to bengreenfield.com. You see <laughs> A guy holding a stripper pole. I have no idea what's going on there. But you know, I tried to I tried to buy that website from him, and and you know what he told me? What? So so I so you know I was like, yeah, I offered. I think I offered him a decent amount. I mean, it was like twenty k or something. You know, it was a decent amount yeah. for a domain name website. And he's like, only if you retract anything you ever said about vaccinations. That was his reply. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting uh, retort. So, anyways, I don't I don't have the I don't have the URL yet. <laughs> All right. So go to bengreenfieldlife.com. And that's where you can learn about the book. There's a beautiful book trailer. And I think you guys are really going to dig this if you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Ben Greenfield. Hey, thanks so much, Vishen. I love you, brother. So if you enjoyed this conversation, check out Endure by Ben Greenfield. Again, the domain is bengreenfieldlife.com. And if you're a Mind Valley member, enroll in Ben's program on Mind Valley. It's called the Longevity Blueprint. And this is a program that is so powerful. It's changed so many lives. But Ben Greenfield takes you through a detailed understanding over four weeks. It's 20 minutes a day for four weeks, but you gain mastery on everything you can do to fully optimize your body. You learn about morning walks. You learn about, about cold showers. You learn about the importance of the sauna. You learn the types of food to eat. You completely transform the way you show up in your body. And he also goes deep into the mind and spiritual element as well. You can check it out on Mind Valley. And when you become a member, Ben Greenfield's Longevity Blueprint is available for you. I'll see you on the next Mind Valley podcast. Thank you. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.